0: Welcome, friends of the Craft Nation. We call upon you in this hour to lend your listening ears for another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. I am one of the crafties-in-chief, Arjuna, and joining me, the other crafty-in-chief, Kovar Goblu, the mystery mage, the wandering emperor himself.
1: (laughs) Been doing a lot of wandering lately. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I always call you the Queen Bee Crafty. Is is that fine? You know what? It works for me, man. Who pays
0: attention to gender anymore, right?
1: Right. You English folks, queen seems to be a big deal to you guys and gals and folks. I'm kind of a queen. I accept it. (laughs) Wow.
0: Yeah, that's leaning in. Cool. So uh, where you been? How have things been? What's going on?
1: So last weekend on Thursday, I left my comfy home in northern Michigan and got on a plane in Traverse City, Michigan to fly to Chicago and then fly to Indianapolis and attend SCG Con Indy. I didn't go to compete or anything of that nature. I was just going to meet fans. And just because I try to give people a little extra on this show, the behind the scenes is I'm not sure what the best way to meet my fans are. I've definitely grown a lot since the start of COVID. I think that in 2019, if I had gone out, I'd be surprised to meet two people that knew who I was. And now I have no idea what's going to happen, to be honest. So I went to MTG Vegas. That went pretty well. Vegas, pretty big spot. I'm thinking about going to PAX East. I'm also thinking about going to TwitchCon. There's also another convention I can't talk about yet, but I'm going to be a guest there. And I went to Con, and I'm kind of experimenting with where I can meet the most fans given distance, time, and investment. Because I do want to get out and meet people, but I'm not sure where the right venue is. SCG was interesting because it's traditionally a very entrenched, spiky audience, but they're entrenched in like competitive play and paper formats like Modern and Legacy. So I didn't know if anybody would know who I am. Trying to figure out where the right place to go is. It was good. I did meet a lot of fans. In particular, one fan, we'll give it up, for someone who will be known as E.K., when my flight got canceled in Chicago and I had no flight to Indy and they tried to rebook me to a flight Saturday morning, which would have missed half the convention. And I looked into driving. I just put out a tweet asking if there were anybody going to the convention from Chicago because I didn't think that was a huge stretch. thought that was totally possible. In 20 minutes, a fan was out the door on their way to the airport. Within an hour, I was in a fan's car who drove me to Indianapolis from Chicago, three and a half hours south, for those not around the Midwest. And then they dropped me off at my hotel an hour before the flight would have landed, and then they drove back home. They weren't even going to the convention. That is service, my friend.
0: Wow. (laughs) Your your service to the dojo will not soon be forgotten,
1: EK. That's amazing. What a legend. Really cool guy. You know, I keep making jokes about. I didn't end up hacked up in a ditch, so that's nice too. And I will say that from the get-go, I was like, all right, this person has tried some content before. They have Twitter followers. We have friends in common. This is going to be fine. Yeah. So be, be careful out there. I'm not saying don't be careful, but there was definitely evidence of like, yeah, this person knows people I know and they're probably fine.
0: Very cool. You know, I've had nothing but good experiences catching rides with people I don't know. Maybe that's just survivorship bias. But uh, another vote for that. Plus, you just get to meet really cool,
1: interesting people, right? I'm thinking of survivorship bias as a really bad phrase for this specific situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you never hear the story from the one hacked up in the ditch whose body is never found, do you? Mm. That was another
0: life. I've left that all behind me now, right? Well, that's cool, dude. I'm super glad that you've been getting to meet folks and getting out to travel and enjoying the cons and all that stuff. Really rad. As for myself, I wanted to just formally say for all the crafties who expected an episode last week and didn't get one, and especially people who maybe like don't follow the podcast account, i.e. me, on Twitter, we did not record a show last week. And you know why, CGB? Because uh, my timing was really bad for taking a trip? You know, that contributed to it partially. But the actual reason was that it was literally the first time since I've started playing Arena that I just didn't want to talk about Magic Arena. I was done, dude.
1: I was over it. I want to hear the reasons, and I'm sure there are a few. I know that Thursday I was in an airport and I was watching the weekly MTG Arena economy stream on my phone. And I'm curious what played into it, but that's the first thing I thought of when you told me that you didn't feel like talking this week. Did that have anything to do with it?
0: You know, absolutely nothing to do with it. (laughs) That, among many other things. So, okay, I think, honestly, more than any one thing, it was kind of like a confluence of different events. Me continuing to try to play Best of One, I don't know why I do this to myself. i just getting really frustrated and grumpy and disappointed. That Kamigawa Alchemy set released, I was kind of like a negative Nelly on it. And then... I finally kind of talked myself into it and I was like, all right, you know, let's try it out. And I crafted some of that bamboo dude, crafted the mythic ramp snake within 45 minutes, was just like wondering where I'd like ripped up all my wild cards to and (laughs) what I was even doing with my life. (laughs) So that was like a rage quit. And then this economy stream comes along and yeah, Magic Arena community, we have plans for you. Stare straight into the camera and uh, enjoy our little plan that we put together for you. And then we'll just like give you a little bit more
1: of our little plan that we have going on here. And then uh, everyone will go home and be happy, right? This is a moment where the YouTube viewers, they're getting something a little extra here on YouTube. So sorry to the listening audience. Maybe I should describe it. Arjuna has now put both middle fingers directly into the camera. I'm feeling a little targeted, but I know it's not for me. But (laughs) I've never seen this. (laughs) It
0: was basically the corporate equivalent of go suck it arena players. Felt that way. And honestly, like, you know me... I'm not like the most kind of economy complaining person. I think on this podcast, we have both established ourselves as people who just kind of have gotten with the program. We're going to do this because this is the way it is. We're not going to waste too much time thinking about it.
1: Yeah, we're buyers and we try to leave the complaints mostly on the side so that we can make a podcast that we would enjoy listening to, which is talking about mostly cards, decks, and uh, not specifically the economy every single time. Because you could we totally could but it's not what we want to do
0: I, like i already know that the economy sucks i don't need to listen to like someone that i enjoy talking about it right but it more than anything it just really felt like a slap in the face and it really made me falter on my commitment to the platform and, and honestly i just thought how can you be so bad at running a business? I mean, there are a lot of tweets that went out about it. I posted to Twitter my timeline. I zoomed out to try to capture all of the tweets. It was like 30 tweets in a row, and they were only about the arena economy. You can see it. It's just like this epic, super tall JPEG. I had to zoom out to like 50% in my browser to capture it all.
1: I'm gonna try to summarize it because some people might not know what it was, if they only listen to us for the news. How would you summarize the Arena Economy stream? The middle finger. Okay, got it. I would summarize it as they said they were going to do a stream discussing the Arena Economy, which got people excited about potential changes that could happen when you even open a door and say you're going to do a stream about the economy. It makes people believe that maybe you found improvements that can be made or some way to make new things like alchemy more affordable or something. And I believe I would describe it as... They used it as a way to promote products that shouldn't exist. For example, 4999 for four mythic wildcards and twelve rare wildcards when you should just be opening packs for that price. Wait, I'm sorry. I think my hearing failed
0: me. What what did you just say, CGB? I said
1: 4999 for 12 rare wildcards and four mythic wildcards, where if you were to just buy the packs, you would get Better value opening the packs. I've heard people
0: say something like you get, on average, maybe like nine rare wild cards and three mythic wild cards, plus 48 rares, or whatever, 45
1: rares. Plus what you open. And then all of that vault progress as well. So that is... An example of a product that should never be purchased, it is designed for me, the person who doesn't want to sit around opening packs and doesn't want to play limited, the person who just wants to go craft the deck they want to craft and play, but I can never buy it because I will know I'm a moron because I gave up all that value. So, I'm going to keep sitting there clicking packs and trying not to accidentally press that particular bundle in the store. But the people they're going to get, they're going to feel like idiots too when they figure out how the economy works. If they actually stay and stay involved with Arena, they're going to hate themselves for doing this. And they're going to rightfully hate Wizards because this product should not exist. It's a straight up blatant scam. It blows my mind that they think that the kind of
0: person who would care that much about the platform to be spending $50 on a product on it wouldn't figure that out. That is aimed directly at entrenched players who know what they're doing. I guess maybe there's just literal new to the game naive people with a lot of cash to blow who, you know, they might kind of scam. But exactly, just like you said, those people are going to turn around in a few months and be like, wait, WTF was I spending my money on? It's a total non-sequitur. It literally just doesn't compute for me that they would think that that was a cool move. Certainly not at that price point. Cool. If we're talking about like half the price, sweet, cool incentive. But like, I literally don't know where they get off with stuff like this.
1: There's a few other changes. They made a Mythic Guaranteed pack for $1,300, which I guess is good if your plan is to open packs until you collect the full set and you run out of rares, which totally happens. But I usually just don't buy packs after that, so I don't know who's running out there getting these either. And then there is the change that I noticed in the update, which is that if you play the alchemy events, you get alchemy cards for rewards. I don't think they talked about this on the stream, but that's actually an important change to the economy because you can play things like alchemy events and collect alchemy cards, which you couldn't do in the past. The bulk of the stream, though, I felt they would come up with a legitimate concern and make the worst excuse I've ever heard for why they won't do it. And the biggest reason I kept hearing over and over again is there's something about opening booster packs, man. We just wanted people to really love opening booster packs and open booster packs. It's like Christmas every day when we open booster packs. And there was a lot of jokes in chat and people I've talked with since then. it's like, this must be how they take their paycheck in booster packs that they can open. But there's such a big difference between opening a paper booster pack with a ton of, variations of foils and alt arts and cool things in every individual set. An opening arena pack where it's a countdown till you open gems and then you don't care anymore. And that's if you're away the rest of the time. It's maybe one of these cards might be playable for me somehow, but it's usually within about, I don't know, 10, 20 packs. You're just clicking just to get the wild cards. They solved it by offering you a bundle you should never buy. I don't get it. If opening packs is so great, why do they need a bundle? They know it's not great, but they still defend everything around the economy and the acquisition model being through opening packs by it's so much fun to open a pack, but they know it's trash. It's doublespeak. Absolutely.
0: I feel like most arena players' experience of opening packs is like, did I hit another Wanderer? No. Did I hit another Wanderer? No. It's like, oh, insert whichever like chase card that you don't have a playset of that you want to be playing with. That's really what people are thinking when they're opening their packs. And of course, you know, you always seem to load up on four of the crappest mythic in the set before you hit any of the other ones you're remotely interested
1: in. Or you hit all the rare lands in the cycle except the color you play.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying, man. It's pure feels bad. And you're right, I don't even know two inches of my monitor that I even look at when I open packs, you know what I mean? As far as I'm concerned, the rest of the pack doesn't even exist. It's so strange. And, the you know, the thing that really got me was when the question came up, like, why don't you include codes in your regular booster packs for arena boosters? <laughs> and the guy said something to the effect of, yeah, well, you know, like, not every paper player plays arena. So, you know, we just figured, like... Why bother? And I'm like, isn't the entire point of the arena client that you would like every single paper player to be playing the arena client? What better way to transition your main audience for the game, which is people who've been playing paper over the last 30 years, to like get them on your digital client as well. It
1: boils my blood. He said, we don't want things in... In the packs, that would be useless to some amount of the player base that they wouldn't use. That's what was paraphrasingly said. Oh, you mean like tokens? Like the little advertisements for FNM? Like the little explanations of what the different formats are? Like all the draft chaff? Basic lands? Everything. Like Magic has so many ways to play and experience it. Everything is useless to someone and useful to someone. That's why there's a backup economy around Magic. They don't want any kind of a backdoor economy around Arena. They don't want people selling these codes online for lower price than they can charge in the store. That's what it boils down to. But they won't say that. They're going to say some absolute doublespeak that makes no sense to anybody. It frustrates me so much
0: because I feel like that's such a level one take. It's such a kindergarten take on the entire possibility of the integration. People have suggested, for example, having a one for one. You buy a pack and paper, you get a pack on Arena. I can see why wizards wouldn't want to do something like that. There are various reasons, but figure it out. You have an entire building full of smart people who have literally spent two decades figuring out how to monetize this game. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying like you have the skills to do it, and so whether it's just like any other aspects of opening a pack where you don't know if you're gonna get an arena code or not. Maybe you get one in three. Maybe they show up about as often as like these sexy Kamigawa full-art lands show up. Maybe there's some other criteria for it. Maybe, you know, you're more likely to get one in a pack with a crappy rare in it. I don't know. There are just so many ways to implement it, which aren't just like some totally half-assed non-response. These are just a couple of the things, by the way, Crafties. Like, CGB summed it up pretty well, it was just like a long list of well-thought-out questions that have been around for a long time. An even longer list of just completely toast, awful answers. And this is what I want to know, why would they even elect to do this? if the answers were going to be so bad. I don't understand how this got like the rubber stamp of approval to actually go live
1: with it. I have no answer to that. I loved your description of them as kindergarten responses because it did feel like a kindergarten teacher presenting us with the most A-B logic as if we were children. And I know Twitch chat, I often make fun of them for being children, but I mean, this was meant for a pretty large audience and it got a lot of viewers. It had like 5,000 viewers on a Thursday afternoon. And you had nothing? Wow.
0: And more than anything, again, it's not that this is going to hit me hard in the wallet, because it's not crafties. It's really not. I'm not the person who like ultimately needs to be upset about this. It was just so disrespectful. And it was so nearsighted. And it was so poorly thought out. And it just really shook my faith in the ability of the team to make a product that would have like broad appeal. You summed it up so well in your precursor tweet where you basically said something to the effect of, wizards, you have two options. You can make the next big thing. What was the other option that you said?
1: I called it, you can make Arena a niche product for whales or you can take a shot at being the next big thing. <laughs> and the economy is what it takes. It's what determines whether or not this will happen. If people on the street know that MTG is like the
0: premier CCG. People playing Hearthstone know that if they want to play the most competitive, the most intricately designed, the best CCG that exists, they can come over to Arena and play Magic. That's kind of the general consensus. And so what's stopping people from doing that? For some people, they don't want that higher skill ceiling. Or maybe they're just super invested in the game they're playing. But honestly, the reason why so many people aren't moving over is that they don't have incentives to. It blows my mind that the Arena team and just the overall leadership direction of like Wizards Digital hasn't come up with more compelling reasons to poach players from other games.
1: It seems like the plan might be keep making Arena an expensive kind of nasty client and try to build up the other sides of the game. Because we have an announcement that we'll probably be talking about on the show next week coming up for competitive play and the return of competitive play. And there's a lot of cynicism out there. But I spent a lot of time at the SCG Con this weekend, and it's clear that there's still kind of a club, a clubhouse, because people who don't actively work for Wizards were going around saying, it's big and you're going to love it. So we'll see. People who I would expect to be very cynical were saying this. I mean, let's hope, you know. One thing that Wizards does
0: have a track record of is, like, successfully having an organized play experience and successfully creating competitive tiers that many people were happy with for literally decades.
1: Until the MPL, that was a great track record that they had.
0: It's not like it was ever perfect. There were always complaints and whatever. It's such a stark difference. Before, it would be the occasional person on Twitter complaining about X, Y, or Z, get like a little buzz around it, whatever. And now it's just like you go down the list of heavy hitters in the game and they're all making these like absolutely doom and gloom kind of proclamations about it because it's just such an inferior system and such a disheartening conversation around it. I mean, let's hope that William Huey Jensen and the team are really here to pull a rabbit out of a hat. If anyone's going to do it, he's going to do it, but he's going to need
1: backup. And so let's hope the backup is there. There were hints that competitive events in arena, not like the qualifier weekends, but the event track, just play at your own pace, the pay this much to enter and win this much events in arena might actually have a lead to like points or some kind of a way to qualify for bigger things in person or super competitive events, which is kind of... Crazy. And I guess we'll see what that is. But there were hints about that in the economy stream, like Blake was talking about something that he couldn't fully talk about. And it sounded like that. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Let's hope. I feel like morale is kind of an all-time low when it comes to arena competitive
1: play. The game needs a spark. It does need something. The shine of oh. Arena has worn off and COVID's kind of darkness over the world is lifting and people are going out and choosing from among other things to do. They don't have to bash their head into Arena all day or necessarily watch Arena-related content. I'm definitely seeing this in the view patterns, both on Twitch and on YouTube. There is not much growth there at any level. And I put a ton of work into this stuff, but I'm not seeing growth even around big set releases, which is very unusual. So I think that arena has maxed out its appeal and something needs to take magic the next step.
0: It's so sad to hear that assessment, because even though I agree with you, it's just so much less than the potential. I think that's what makes me so sad is that People who are really invested in arenas see so much potential for it, and so many different branching avenues, it could be a big thing. It could make a lot more money, it could do all kinds of stuff. It's so hard to see that potential there, and to not see it capitalized upon. If you looked at Magic Online, that's like an oft-criticized platform, and the criticisms are legitimate. That's not a game with a design that could really scale some pretty incredible, phenomenal things would have to happen in the MTG culture in order for that platform to scale. It's unlikely to happen. Arena is not so. Arena has the potential to scale massively. It's a shame to
1: see that opportunity not capitalized on. I agree. But, I mean, there is stuff happening. It's hard to tell what's going to really hit, but they are continuing to do things that, on one hand, they're in franchise player base is not asking for. But on the other hand, we don't know what kind of impact this is gonna have. In this case, I was reading the announcement today on stream about Commander Legends Baldur's Gate. And I thought I was watching a preview for a paper set because that's what all the Commander Legends have been before. And I read Commander product and I immediately assume it has nothing to do with Arena. I I think it was Jeff Hoogland who like made a tweet about something to do with Baldur's Gate and Arena. And I was like, wait, what? And yeah, you watch it. They are releasing a set, Commander Legends Baldur's Gate. It's going to be a set. It's going to be on Arena. It's going to be draftable. It's going to be like 360 cards. Whoa, really? Yes. And it's going to be alchemy legal, not standard legal. Alchemy and historic
0: legal. So they're making a major set release on alchemy only. That is
1: a statement. Have you ever bought Commander Legends before? I know about it. Okay. Typically it's legacy playable, legacy and vintage And Commander. Like, those are the only things that's legal in. Commander Legends cards have not been introduced to Arena unless somewhere in Historic Horizons or something like that. But in July, a month after the paper release, by the way, which is interesting, paper release for Baldur's Gate, Commander Legends Baldur's Gate, is going to be June 10th. Alchemy, July 7th. A whole month. But then they're releasing this weird combination of cards. Some of them are going to be directly from Commander Legends. It's a huge set. It's going to be draftable, so it's going to have uncommons, commons, unlike what we've seen in other alchemy sets. So Also, you can draft it, so you can collect cards to play in alchemy by drafting, which is not something we've been able to do until now. And what they said, and there's a whole bunch of gray area on this, they said that They're going to be adjusting some of the cards to be playable 1v1 instead of multiplayer playable. They said that not all the cards from Commander Legends are going to be in Alchemy Legends or Alchemy Horizons. Boulder's Gate is what they're calling it. Alchemy Horizons. And it sounds like a bunch of cards are going to work differently just to be on Arena. But yeah, it's a whole set that it goes into alchemy and doesn't go to standard. 360 cards, that's a huge chunk of a format, dude. I mean, it's a massive
0: expansion. It's somewhat reminiscent of the remastered sets they did, which were limited and then went straight into historic. It's got somewhat of that flavor to it. Pushing this specifically for alchemy, like I said before, it's a huge statement. It's a big push to get people more invested in that platform.
1: If you want to play these new cards that are coming out in the summer, and let me set the stage too. If you are a standard player, you get Streets of New Capenna late April. You get Dominaria United in like late September, maybe early October. That's a long summer without new cards in standard. We speculated that they would need to do a standard 2023 and launch it in the summer. They might not now. They've got a whole set that they're going to put into alchemy, and they're not changing standard during that, Time probably at all, but we'll see. Maybe something gets banned, but maybe not at all. Usually in the summer, we don't see many bannings because it's just not very active. So, if you're a player on Arena, do you want to play the same standard for the next like four months, waiting for new cards, or do you want to see this whole new set that everybody's super hyped about? Because let's face it, Commander, even though we're the Arena Craft podcast, we haven't had much to talk about with Commander. It is the most popular way to play Magic. Commander Legend sets sell. They fly, and there's going to be cards from those sets on MTG Arena if you play Alchemy or Historic. Historic's hard to get into, too, but Alchemy. It's going to be hard for standard players to chill out, you know, and just wait for the next set and say, I don't touch that Alchemy stuff. As much as they hate it, there's going to be cards, a lot of new cards. Dude, and powerful
0: cards. Probably. Okay, Commander's a powerful format. These Commander Legends sets, they always have big heavy hitting cards in them and not just like Mimi you know splashy commandery cards either they put some serious sauce you know like you were saying some of these cards end up seeing play in legacy and whatnot I definitely expect that they're hoping that's going to be a huge draw to the format so I'm sure that there are plenty of people who are reading the announcement who are just waiting for like the hint. Of multiplayer on Arena. Anyone who's paying attention would know that that would be the next big thing in Digital Magic, was for Arena to like have an actual commander format where you could actually have like more than two players playing against each other at once. They've kind of basically said that that's not going to happen with this release, but I still think it's interesting to speculate about what kind of a bridge it could potentially be drawing towards that. Because I'll tell you what, if there were one thing that was going to pull Arena back, it would be that.
1: The casual audience giving them a reason to play Arena. So, when I go to Commander Knight at my LGS, and I guarantee most people who play a lot of Arena have had a similar experience, Magic is already a different language, but we assume when we go to play Magic that we're going to be speaking a similar language to the other people. But if you're an Arena player and you go to Commander Knight, and you've mostly bought cards from like standard in the last couple sets. I have basically since Eldraine started collecting again. I have never heard of these freaking commanders people talk about. If they talk about Corvold, I'm like, oh, thank you. I know that one, you know, but they, they keep saying names and I'm like, you know, what's an Atraxa? I had to learn that like that one I do know now. And obviously I can't think of the names of the ones I don't know, but they're always like, oh yeah, I play this. I play that. And I look these cards up. What are they from? Every time. Commander legends again and again and again. They're in these Commander Legends sets that I've tried really hard mostly to ignore because there's so many cards and they're so wordy and there's so much text and I don't play nearly as much Commander as Arena, so I haven't collected these sets, but people love them and it is like a different language. And if their favorite Commander is on Arena, maybe they have a reason to go play Arena. Crazy to think about, but people identify by their commanders And if you get their commanders onto arena, you've got a better chance of getting them to play. This is that example, something I don't think anybody asked for. It sounds ridiculous and a bit crazy because alchemy is already weird, and it's going to be so much weirder than standard now. But... Maybe it gets people involved, and maybe people coming in from the casual audience are playing alchemy and not standard, and maybe all the alchemy haters in a few years are going to be like, what happened? How did this format get so popular? Well, they can play their favorite commanders in it. Even if they're not playing commander, it can be in their deck. As playing historic brawl has proven, there's already
0: plenty of variety on the arena platform to be making a viable 100 card deck. I've been getting more into Paper Commander recently, as have you. But, you know, I'm noticing, like, I'm putting together these lists. We've got staples out the air holes on Arena. You know, we've got our green ramp staples, powerful blue counter spells. We've got stuff like Lightning Bolt. There's enough there. And, of course, it's only going to an increasing card pool going back so it's not like we need to have a workable analog of the whole commander format which is obviously a dauntingly massive project to get on arena but like people would play it right now if people could play four player historic brawl aka arena commander people would be doing
1: it. And they need it too, because if you've played any Historic Brawl, you know it's Scoop City. They need the balancing mechanism of we team up on the person who got too far ahead.
0: If the opponent plays like a mana rock that makes two mana and you don't have one, you've basically just lost the game.
1: People scooping the Firemind's vessel on a regular basis. I played Historic Brawl yesterday on stream for an hour and 40 minutes. How many times do you think over an hour and 40 minutes with jinga Taxus as my commander... How many times do you think I dealt lethal damage to my opponent?
0: So I cheated because I actually watched that stream. (laughs) So I know the
1: answer. And that was a fat zero. (laughs) Zero times. I went 16 and eight. I don't know if I even damaged my opponent. I have to go go back and watch the footage. I might have never attacked. No, you didn't even reveal a win con. Paradox engine comes down. You start untapping stuff. People are just out. They're just done. I, I wouldn't blame them too much for that. But it was literally like, I resolve a mana rock, or I might cast Jingataxis Taxes next turn. And like, I'm going to untap with seven mana, and people were gone.
0: You know what's my most reliable win con in that format? Is just countering
1: their turn to play. They are gone, dude. <laughs> That is very effective. I saw that as well. It works on me, too. I mean, somebody, what, Jwari disrupted my Celestis and then cast Key to the Archive or something like that, and I scooped. I want to bring it around to something. You mentioned the card Lightning Bolt. They spoiled Lightning Bolt in Commander Legends' Baldur's Gate. Yes, they did. I think the chances of them printing it and putting it in alchemy as a legal card are close to zero, I do want to have like a a hypothetical discussion. They have said that they're not going to rebalance or change what they consider iconic magic cards like Time Warp and Brainstorm. So, they're not going to change Lightning Bolt, which is banned currently in Historic. It was in the archive. I just want to know, what would you think the effects would be on the Magic player base if they did make Lightning Bolt legal? only in alchemy. Mono Red is so popular, right? It's always so popular. If you told the magic playing audience that Lightning Bolt is a common and it's legal in alchemy, would they be trying this format? I think a lot of them
0: would. No, that's very possible. And I mean, it's true. You can't understate the power of releasing iconic magic cards on Arena. That's why they've, you know, been reprinting Thalia, the mystical archive, like it can't have been lost on them that they were printing all of these iconic cards into Arena, expressly for the purpose of things like being able to put them in cube and being able to put them in historic brawl and all this kind of stuff. They have to know that this is a power they wield. I agree. I think it's only a matter of time before that comes about in some way. I also do think it is smart for them to label certain cards as off-limits for rebalancing, because it's really true. Like, Imagine if Thalia is all of a sudden a 3-1. They made a good point talking about Lightning Bolt. We're not going to rebalance Lightning Bolt, we've rebalanced Lightning Bolt like literally hundreds of times. Like, What do you think Shock is? (laughs) Why did they decide to print Shock? So I mean it would just be absolute tomfoolery for them to modify a card like Lightning Bolt. It would definitely be a draw.
1: It might take a card like Lightning Bolt to fix what the hell they did to Alchemy last Thursday. Can can we talk about that? Is it a good transition point? Lay it on me because, you know,
0: I played the format for about an hour before I rage quit, but I've been watching a fair amount of the format. So I'm definitely interested to kind of hear your take on it.
1: I didn't even keep up with the spoilers because I knew I was going to be traveling during the release. I had hoped the release was the following week. But when I found out it was like next week during the Kamigawa stream that they were going to release the 30 alchemy-only cards, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be, like, a week late to this format. That kind of sucks. So I didn't even keep up on spoilers or anything, and I focused on other work. So I come back, and I log in, and I had watched maybe, like, an hour of croaky streams, and that was about it. These cards that have been released, I can see why you had buyer's remorse on the green ones, man, because you read, like, the green one, and you read the blue one. Uh, There are some cool-looking cards, and they sound really fun. And then you go up against the black cards. Wow, I don't even know where to begin. Um, So I'm going to begin with Undercity Plunder, I guess, because that card is the one that blows my mind the most right now of the new cards, where it's like, I can't believe this got out the door this way. This is a black sorcery. One in a black. Target opponent discards a card. Then they may discard an additional card. If they don't, conjure a duplicate of a random card from their library into your hand it perpetually gains you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast this spell so two mana discard two is good like too good can't print that like they, they won't do it right but what if instead of discarding a card you just could let your opponent draw a card that's somehow better the ceiling on this card is so insanely high i mean if they discard two cards to avoid it you get the cleanest cheapest two for one in a long time. If they don't discard a card, the ceiling's still crazy high. What if you get one of their top end cards? The worst case scenario is you get a land when you didn't need a land. If you're playing black, trust me, you've got some blood tokens, which is what everybody's figured out what to do with this card. If you get a card you don't want, you just pitch it away. It's like basically drawing a card. The part that gets me, you still get the card if they have no cards in their hand.
0: Oh, you do? Wow brutal
1: yeah if they have no cards in their hand or one card in their hand when you cast this if they have one card they have to discard the card and you get a card if they have no cards you just get a random card from their deck so it's never dead it doesn't have the discard drawback which is you draw it after you already made them discard too much and you just have a dead card like doesn't happen it is such a warping card because any deck that's not black just trying to accumulate a little value here and a little value there this card just comes along and wipes it out every time so here's my question to you in the current format the way it exists is this card better or worse than him to torak that's a good question i think him to torak is better on the basis that you can just completely mana hose your opponent and like the ceiling on that is the opponent loses the game on turn two if you hit two lands and they don't draw anymore the ceiling on Undersea plunder isn't you win the game on turn two But it definitely feels like a card where the person who draws more of them shouldn't lose. The the thing that really
0: stood out to me is that him to Tarak falls off pretty quickly in a game of Magic, especially against an aggressive opponent, whereas Undercity Plunder does not. So Undercity Plunder is a lot more likely to win you the game on turn 6 than Hymn to Tarak is. It's also not a mono-black
1: card the way Hymn to Tarak kind of has to be. So its floor is higher than Hymn's, is kind of what you're saying.
0: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I'm not suggesting they're going to do something like reprint Hymn to Tarak, because that is a fundamentally feels-bad magic card. But I think that the power level... This card is closer in power level to him to Tarak than it looks. And I think that the difference of it not being random and your opponent having a little more agency takes away some of that feels bad. But I agree. I mean, this card is like, busted power level.
1: The good news, though, is it's black. So although you can get a nice clean two for one for two mana by making them discard, you probably don't have a way to draw cards. You probably don't have a way to just gain that raw advantage. Uh, I think black was really struggling with that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, hold on. We've got a black uncommon in the set. One and a black for an instant painful bond. This one's an uncommon, so not as hard on the wild cards, but Good lord, this just goes in like every black deck, so who cares? Draw two cards, then cards in your hand with mana value three or greater perpetually gain. When you cast this spell, you lose one life. Two mana draw two at instant speed. This is like arguably bad to an expressive iteration. It's on that power level, and the only way that it punishes you is if you're running like a super high curve, and the opponent is intensely pressuring you. What I've noticed playing Bond is... Even when I have to pay life for my Invoked Despairs, my City Stalker Connoisseurs, my Sanguine Brushstrokes, the three drops that are in the deck, even when I have to pay life for them, I usually don't even notice because I have Meat Oak Massacre and I have a Sanguine Brushstroke and I have Blood Artist. I get incidental life all over the place. And it is really important that you don't have to pay the life until you cast it because you can usually just casting other things, but it's also not unrealistic to cast this and never pay any life because you just make it like one of the last cards out of your hand or you you have an insanely low curve. Low curve decks are usually strong in competitive magic than high curve decks anyway. It's just raw card advantage for two mana. The other card that we just talked about was raw card advantage for two mana. Like, what are you supposed to do? Play mid-range without playing black? I don't think you can. Especially since some of the other
0: top cards in the format are cards like City Stalker Connoisseur, which is just like another card advantage machine. That's a card that's like another essentially, basically a two for one that also somehow makes a blood. So it can, it can end up being a three for one.
1: Just a four mana, get the biggest card out of their hand, usually the best, and trade with something because it has Death Touch. And that card, it was shining. I mean, it was all over the place at the Neon Dynasty Set Championship. So it definitely made its presence known. Now it has this team of endless raw card advantage, and I don't know how you're supposed to compete with it. I was playing like blue white, and it's, I have like four Memory Delusions, and four Behold the Multiverse. It didn't matter. i draw two cards. I'd have to discard them the next turn, or come up with a counter spell, which you don't want to counter these, because then you can't counter their big plays. And then they invoke Despair, and they just draw three, and you lose six, and the party continues. I can't imagine playing the format without playing black right now. It's the only thing that can go right for you is if you present a threat, and they don't have an answer that is kind of generically good enough so they have to dig for it and maybe you get a few hits in and maybe they die but it seems to me like a well-tuned black deck shouldn't have these problems and there's a lot of like rakdos around i want to talk about this for a second crokies this week went 66 and four in best of three with rakdos he couldn't get past rank two on the ladder he did all this rank five or higher and he couldn't rank up. It was obscene. There's two things at work here. Number one, alchemy is not a busy format. So the competition and the elo of that competition was suffering. You'd see pairings against diamond and platinum on a regular basis. The other thing that seems to be going on is just the Rakdos deck just seems so much better than everything. I think he lost like a mirror and he lost to a venture deck is the only two losses I saw. There was Orvar the All Form. you know, that has a line of text about if you have to discard it, it enters the battlefield for free or something as a copy of any permanent, I think. That's the meta now. That's a
0: fun time. Well, this kind of harkens back to my conversation with Rumty, where he was saying that just the Herculean effort it takes to get to and then maintain number one is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, I think that's highlighted by the fact that croquis can go, you know, 60 something and four and still not get there. I mean, what
1: my evidence do you need? It's absolutely ridiculous. So early season Mythic, you just run. If you're there faster, you have a shot. Late season Mythic, I think I was like 59 and 6 in best of one. And the highest I got was number three. And I started in like top 50 or something. It's absolutely crazy. Once you get to that point, you have to do something like win
0: 90% of your games consistently for like 30 matches or something, if you want to secure number one. It's just unbelievable.
1: That said, I can't imagine playing a deck that isn't black. And when I do, it's like I signed up for absolute misery because these are not fun cards to play against. City Stalker Connoisseur, Invoke Despair, very telling name. And Undercity Plunder, it's a lot of feels bad playing Magic. I wanted to rage quit the format the first time I played it. Two hours I spent playing Alchemy, I was like, I never want to play again. I want to retire from Alchemy. Why would I ever want to do this? Uh, welcome to my world. I'm here like trying to get down snakes
0: on turn two or whatever. You know when I knew that it was just not going to be a format that I was going to be playing? I lost to Eliwick TumbleStrom. <laughs> F this format. It's cool. It's cool that a deck like that could actually have a life. The Venture cards actually getting there after the buffs, I think just shocked basically everyone. I think that the prevalence of the Venture deck somewhat highlights why they were so conservative on that mechanic in the first place. It's actually like a fairly maddening mechanic to play against if they get to keep doing their thing. That feeling of, oh, I can just never catch up, or that feeling of like my opponent has access to a resource that I can't touch or mess with in any way. Like that sinking feeling of unless I literally counter my opponent's next venture card. It just like gives this raw inevitability that's so hard to deal with. Playing against like stupid city stalker decks and stupid venture decks and... Uh, yeah, it lasted about 45 minutes. If
1: there's one thing that's so fun about magic, it's just topdecking, right? Just having your hand taken from you and hope that you don't top deck land so you get to keep playing magic. That's fun, right? Give me a moment to complain about the
0: snake. Forceful Cultivator. Okay, what's it do? So Forceful Cultivator, 2 green green, 2-3, two, mythic. Costs 2 generic less to cast if you have no lands in your hand. And when it ETBs, You can search a library for a basic and put it onto the battlefield tapped. So I read this card, and me being, I'll give myself a little credit here, a very experienced ramp mage, I looked at this card and I was like, this card seems really bad, but they made it mythic. It's the green mythic of this set. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. They also printed this bamboo cultivator or whatever that thing's called, which is kind of designed to help you get your value out of the snake. So like you play a bamboo dude on turn 1, you hit another land drop, on turn 2 you hit another land drop and hopefully by then you've emptied out your hand, you get another land from your snake. If that happens, yeah, you're riding high, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. In every other scenario, yeah, let's talk about those every other scenarios. I have never ever played a ramp deck that made me want to not draw lands. The entire point of a ramp deck is that you want to keep drawing lands so you can make your land drops. So you have these hands. It's like two lander with a snack and anything else. And you're like, snap keep, this is gonna be great. And then like on turn two, you draw another land. Does that mean that my snake is just really like this awful, awful card? At that point, it's not even as good as a Quandrix cultivator. Worst sad robot doesn't draw a card. <laughs> it's a slap in the face with the most agonizing mix of emotions. I don't want to draw lands in my ramp deck, but I actually do, because I need to make my land drops. But I don't, because I have this card in my hand. But wait, I drew another land now, okay, I play it, but now my snakes are cheaper, but now I'm off curve. So I don't really want to play my snake this turn, because I have another play that uses the available mana that I have. So maybe I'll wait for next turn. But oh wait, no, I drew another, it's just like, it's maddening. I even kind of wonder whether they designed this card to fix specifically my life because I keep complaining about how I keep getting two landers in my ramp decks in best of one and like not being able to advance my game plan. So maybe they were like, this solves Arjuna's problem. But the problem with this card is that it's almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't. So if you have a two lander and you don't draw your third land, then you play the snake and it gets you another land, and that's cool, that's cool. But what if you don't draw another land, then you're still behind. And if you do draw another land, you're less likely to be casting your snakes when you want to be. So I've never had such strong buyer's remorse as after investing four mythic wild cards to play this stupid card, which I wouldn't play in my deck at any rarity. And I knew in that moment why people hate Arena so much. And I knew in that moment why people rage so hard, and why they write these vitriolic, hyperbolic things on Facebook and YouTube, because... It just truly made me hate the game and want to walk away from it. It, it crossed the line
1: for me. We got to get back to the crafting guides, man. We used to be there to you know, tell people what they should and shouldn't craft. I think I would have said not to craft Forceful Cultivator. Easy to say now, but I think I would have said don't do it. No, I would have told people to hold off. I did it for science. We're trying to do good by the people.
0: Exactly. And also because that's what I like to play. That's my signature. So I was like, this is my contribution. This is my content. We're going to play the available RAM cards and see how good they are. And for me, more than anything, it's a cool card design. It's totally fine no worries. But it being a mythic, it's deeply indicative of such a greedy and poorly designed system. Because a card of that power level, which is a.k.a. a really bad card, just shouldn't be mythic, pretty much in any circumstance, in my opinion.
1: There's a long history of bad mythics. It's weird to see them in Alchemy Kamigawa, these very limited set releases, because I don't know why they exist at all. So, you would think that the whole point is to make a splash in alchemy. So, bad mythics, bad mythics, I think, if there's a place where bad mythics should be a no-no, it's here, I think. It doesn't make a lot of sense that you only have five mythics, one of each color, in a supplemental set released specifically for a format that's supposed to be in fast motion and interesting, and they're bad. So, I picture the Eye of Sauron, of rebalancing is going to shine itself on this forceful cultivator or this cycle because it is a feels bad that these suck. And uh, I'm going to pass that on to the other, this card. I'll talk about the blue one in a second, but I, I think that's general for this uh, mythic cycle is that they're not nearly as good as they should have been. Maybe they'll get rebalanced. We'll see. If this were a 4-4, uh, four, four, would you be pog? 2-mana 4-4, four, four, get a land? I'd be ma pog if
0: the cost on the card was 1-green-green. The most frustrating play pattern of the card is that you keep it with a two-lander, and then you end up with another land in your hand on the turn you want to play it. And then you have to wait an extra turn. So if you can't play it on turn two, you should always be able to play it on turn three. That would be my adjustment for the card.
1: I'd also like that because if you don't have a land in hand, it kind of... Gives you a shot at four mana on turn four, where the powerful four drops like Chariot and ovenwald uh, Oddity lie. And if you play it like regular with lands in your hand, you go straight to five so you can invoke the Ancients. You know, I think that just sounds like a much better card. Whereas right now, the curve is basically non-existent. You can't curve with this card. The frustration you discussed is basically you have no curve.
0: No, it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't.
1: I want to talk about the blue cards. Is that cool? Go for it. Being the blue mage, I immediately tried to Azorius and blue-black this format, and it's been very hard. But I think it's interesting what they're trying to do with these alchemy cards. So I'm going to read you two cards, and then we're going to discuss what happens with them. Futurist Spell Thief is two and a blue for a flash 3-2, and when it enters the battlefield, you conjure a duplicate of target spell into your hand. This spell gains you can spend mana as though it were any color to cast this spell. So you have to play it when the spell is on the stack, but it can copy any anything other than a land so you can have your own like a channel or whatever any spell on the stack Uh, maybe they fixed it with the update yesterday but there was a bug i copied someone seized the spoils and maybe it's because i bashed it on this podcast but i couldn't cast it it said right there it was three generic mana i would drag it out try to cast it wouldn't let me do it it would ask me to tap red i don't have any red i'm playing blue white Is Seize the Spoils the one that wants you to discard a card to cast it? Yeah. I wonder if it got hung up on that somehow. Like, even if you had the card to discard. I definitely had the cards. Yeah, I planned to discard a card to it. So it was bugged. There was also a a, uh, perpetual cost reduction bug for... discover the formula. My memory deluge said it was three mana and I would drag it out and try to cast it. It would ask me to tap four and I couldn't cast it for three. Yeah. Good times. So there's future Spell Thief, which can copy like any spell in the stack. There's also Saba Siphoner, which is two blue blue for a two, two flash. Oh, by the way, the copied spell goes to the hand. It's not like a fork, you know, like you save it for later. You have to pay the cost later, but it does sit in your hand. It doesn't go on the stack right away. So, that's something that I think a lot of people forget when reading this card. It's not like
0: Waiting in Exile for you to cast.
1: Right. It's in your hand. It's a a perpetual permanent copy, yeah. Saba Siphoner is the mythic. Two blue blue, two two flash, human ninja. This spell costs two less to cast if there are no instant or sorcery cards in your hand. Let me promise you, that's like a 1% of the timer for me. When it actually happens, I'm like, wow, I really just had to throw some cards in the garbage to make that happen. (laughs) Anyway, when it enters the battlefield, you return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. If Saba Siphoner would die, shuffle it into your library instead. I want to talk about these cards because the play patterns they promote that are, quote, fun. I don't know why these exist. If you have Futurist Spell Thief and Divine Purge, you can just keep casting your Futurist Spell Thief copying the Divine Purge, so you always have another purge in your hand, and it exiles the Spell Thief. So, as long as you keep your mana moving forward, it's almost like you have purges again and again as often as you want them. You quick, like around turn like six, or whenever you get to six mana, you enter this world of endless purging like every every two turns you can cast a purge (laughs) it's really stupid every
0: cycle it's costing you two more mana but it's costing your opponent exponentially more like two more mana on every card getting exiled your mana savings are just exponential yeah that's there's no
1: way for them to win basically a lot of decks like esper clerics for example just okay we die here but the thing is you can stop doing the loop when you have a a Siphoner, because now you can play the Siphoner, copy that with the Spell Thief, and use the Siphoner to get back the Purge. And now you have another Siphoner in your hand because you copied the Siphoner with the Spell Thief. I am not kidding. Because of that final clause on the Siphoner, that it shuffles back into your library if it would die. My endgame plan, and it's a four-mana play so it doesn't get exiled by purge, my endgame plan is I'm going to have Devastating Mastery and I'm just going to keep blowing up my siphoners and shuffling them back into the deck and drawing them again and casting them again to get more back Devastating Mastery, and I'm going to do this until the opponent either concedes or dies to two twos for four-mana. What is this play pattern? What kind of, quote, fun is this? (laughs) What are we doing? Isn't it
0: reminiscent of like modern or maybe legacy decks where like Snapcaster Mage is the main win
1: con? Isn't that the idea? Almost. At least Snapcaster, like you kill it, or if you can find ways to kill it. This, you just you know shuffle it back in, just get it back later. If they are crafty about it and they try to vanishing verse it, and you're like, oh, I'll Fateful Absence my own Siphoner, and I even draw a card off it. We'll shuffle it back in. We'll play the Siphoner at flash speed. We'll get back the Fateful Absence. Let me tell you, pl- it, it having flash. I flash in Siphoner, get back Test of Talents. I flash in Siphoner, I copy it with a future Spell Thief, I get back Test of Talents, and I have another Siphoner to get a future Test of Talents. Good stuff. Fun times. Sounds like CGB's brand of fun. It's what I'm resorting to, to deal with Under City Plunder and Painful Bond. And I don't even like playing cards like Test of Talents and Best of One, because I feel like it's one-shot deck building, but here we are. And again, you know, you make
0: a good point where the the four-mana one that's cheaper if you have nothing in hand It's basically the blue version of the green mechanic, where it's doing something that you basically don't want to be doing in your deck. I mean, in the scenario you outlined, it's like a very cogent endgame, and so you've basically built your deck to do that, like, built your deck around that card. But I think, like, in the general instance, that card is basically, like, not buttering anyone's bread. I think they've they've designed these cards to bail us out of a feels-bad scenario, so, like, we feel better When we're in a scenario that we don't want to be in. But the problem is that when we're in the scenario we don't want to be in, we're just essentially losing. A two mana discount isn't going to save us. No, it's not doing that much to catch us up. So I just like, it's kind of a bizarre way to implement a catch-up mechanic, basically.
1: My verdict right now on latest alchemy is there's rebalancing on the 7th, April 7th. I don't recommend anybody touch it till the 7th unless they love the discard effects because I think those are the most likely things to get nerfed. If you love the idea of discard tribal being something you don't mind playing against and want to play, then alchemy's fun right now. I wouldn't touch it otherwise. I really... Can't stress enough that it's not very fun if you're not into that. It's like a rogues level to me, where it doesn't feel like any of your planning or things matter if the opponent draws three to four undercity plunders and you have no hand and you're just playing a bad top deck game against your own cards. It really does feel like a meme
0: format to me right now. It's like one of the memeest magic formats that currently exists. And I think that's sad. And I think that people are gonna look at that and be like C, this is why we don't do digital only or like C, this is why this was a bad idea. And it just frustrates me because I'm like they rebalance plenty of like non-digital only cards in a good way. Like Gold Dragon being rebalanced, A okay. Sounds great to me. Frickin' Hullbreaker Horror being rebalanced. Sounds good. Not nearly as good of a card. Still might play it. So like all that kind of stuff is great. I really wish that the format leaned more in that direction and not in the direction of let's print all of these super powerful and also kind of meme-inducing cards. One color got by far the best two cards in this set. It's not close. What are they doing? It makes me wonder if Black was really underperforming in Alchemy before this, which I don't remember, honestly.
1: All the Black decks were like, clerics decks i guess venture at the neon dynasty championship everything was a black deck those black mid-range kiki-jiki uh reflection of kiki-jiki stalker connoisseur decks definitely dominated the meta once you got past runes that's true and and that was pre the kamigawa
0: release wasn't it there goes that theory it uh, it boggles my mind as well
1: predictions for april 7th i think that Undercity plunder might i don't know why they're just cowards about this they they hate adding a mana cost to an item to make it worse they try to like do some funky tweaking of the card and so maybe they're just going to adjust it so that if the opponent's empty-handed you don't get anything and it would have a real downside so i i would guess something like that might happen painful bond might be two life maybe they just won't touch that one
0: Or just every card in your hand gets the modification?
1: Yeah, that would be fine, too. Mana value two or greater, maybe. Save the one drops. I think that there's going to be a rebalancing on black in a significant way. They might even do that really obnoxious Wizards of the Coast trick, of rebalancing City Stalker Connoisseur instead and Sanguine Brushstroke to try to encourage people to buy the new cards. Kind of make the whole color as a whole a little bit worse. Yeah. That's like the Uro argument, which we all know already rarely works. Uro lasted what? year and a half? No, maybe it was one year. Maybe it was like six months, but it felt like a year and a half. <laughs> I mean, that card lasting more than a month in the format was just a
0: travesty. The card that currently feels like Uro to me in standard is Goldspan Dragon. I cannot believe that Goldspan Dragon is still out of jail free. It's an
1: interesting case where you don't understand how much it warps you until you try to play a control deck that doesn't have Goldspan Dragon. (laughs) It's like really hard. It's really miserable. How about standard white? Is insane. I keep trying. I can't help it. I crafted these dragons, dude. They're mythic Kamigawa dragons with dice triggers. I keep trying to build decks around them for the content because people like dragons and most people aren't going to craft a bunch of these mythic dragons because they don't have the money. So it's fun for them to watch and see how they do. I swear to God, I don't know how many dragons have been exiled over here, but it's getting into the hundreds and hundreds of times my mythic dragons have been exiled. Because every deck plays white, it seems like. Every deck has just enough white for that exile, unless it's blue-red. Blue-red is like the only other time, and you know, against them, they're pretty good, but they have bounce and they have other ways. That's kind of what you want. If you're playing those dragons, you want to fight blue-red. But white is everywhere. Everything gets exiled, dude. There is no dies trigger.
0: Either it gets exiled from your hand before you even cast it and you don't get to cast it or Brutal Cathar that they always have at the right time. It feels bads all the way
1: down, dude, for sure. Sometimes Magic is all feels bads, right? I, I, I don't know why we have to pretend like it's not a salty-inducing game. We can love it and still get salty sometimes. It's okay. I mean, I rage-quit the podcast last week, so... <laughs> Let's normalize rage-quitting the podcast. It doesn't have to be taboo. No, we didn't quit Magic. We're not, like, going off the deep end. No, we don't hate the game now. Just normalize the occasional rage-quit. It's fine.
0: No Mono were harmed in the the rage quitting either. Good times. Good healthy little rage quit. All right, CGB, any last thing you want to say before we head out here? There's been a lot of announcements made and all kinds of stuff. I think that we touched on the the
1: juiciest ones for Arena. I checked off everything on my list. I just hope when we get together next week, it's going to be to discuss some awesome organized play stuff. Organized play is something that I think you and I share a passion for that a lot of people just don't follow or pay attention to, and honestly, for the last few years, for good reason. They basically took away all the prestige and glory and relatability of being a competitive magic player. And we've tried to keep it alive where we can, but it's hard. And I would like for that to come back, because I think it's something more people should find interesting, exciting, and fun. It's been a major source of joy over the 20 years or so that I've been interested in it in my life. And I want to share that with people again without it being kind of like sad boomer cringe of, it was better before, guys. I don't know what to tell you. Right now, it's kind of lame. Anyway, there's an announcement coming. I want it to be good and i want to be able to be excited about it so hopefully that's what we're doing next week couldn't agree more and
0: you know it's funny because mr arena over here the thing that would excite me most is just hearing about the announcement of some kind of paper pro tour level event you know there's something magical about you know that sound you hear dice hit the table at the pro tour And there's just like that sound that you get like from the mic and there's the sound of like the players muttering and there's the sound of when a card hits the table, like someone kind of thumbs up the edge of the card and it snaps down on the table, right? There's something about making you feel like you're there, which is just never going to happen in arena. That's one of the things that I miss the most. It's just not the same, man.
1: I think we've just been conditioned by the way that we watch sports in modern times that you take the best in the world, you put them on the field or in a room or at a table and they duke it out one on one. And as great as Arena has been thank God it did come around before COVID happened because COVID could have happened that many times in history. Arena could have happened that many times in history. I'm glad we had Arena to get through it. But yeah, we need some uh, paper best in the world. People fighting it out. See who can come out the winner.
0: I also remembered final thing I wanted to note before we go out here which is Pioneer. On arena they talked about it as a thing that they're still thinking about they also hinted at having a non-alchemy eternal format on arena so that's a thing that's in the works i don't remember whether they explicitly said this but it doesn't take a genius to put it together that that's going to be the pioneer uh format on arena i'm really excited about this i personally have always liked pioneer and have always wanted to play it i think that pioneer has a shot at being one of the most popular Magic formats if they would just support it more. And I think putting it on Arena would be huge. I also think that it would really incentivize people to get their hands on some of the older cards, which I think is kind of an underrated aspect of what keeps Magic's longevity. Let's talk about Khan's block, for example. Printed all of these cool cards. You know, some of them, I guess, get played in Commander, and some of them get played in Modern or whatever. But there's a lot of cards that are printed in sets like that which aren't seeing play. And if all of a sudden you're creating demand for those cards, then you have more incentives to reprint them. You have more incentives to include them in various kinds of starter decks. They're basically getting more value out of the IP that they already have and out of the work that they've already been uh, done. I think that doing something to keep the format alive digitally not only does it keep people engaged in the game but it keeps people valuing paper cards as well and that format in particular is a lot easier to get into than modern for example so i think that a lot of people playing pioneer on arena means there's going to be more people playing pioneer in paper because playing in paper is fun as we all know i personally was really thrilled to hear about the announcement of this and didn't they have an event as well they had an event on arena which was kind of like
1: arena pioneer so to speak somebody trying to call it pioneer light in my chat and i just kept correcting them that it's pioneer at home all the cards that have been introduced to arena from return to ravnica forward were legal but really that's not very many cards it's like short about 16 sets or something
0: i'm excited about this And especially, you know, if they were to release like a Pioneer Masters set or a series of those, I'd be all over them. I would definitely be in the target market for that. I'm really hoping that it's something that they do manage to focus on. It was a thing that's often been brought up with Alchemy, like, why are you focusing on Alchemy and not Pioneer? And so them doing both
1: sounds good to me. I want a boomer standard flashback like option. I want to pay make it like twenty thousand gold and I can play it for a week and it gives me access to all the cards. I just want like them to take you to a specific standard. The return to Ravnica Pro Tour Modern or Gatecrash Standard, and they just have all the cards, they're legal, you go in, you build the deck you played like a decade ago, and you go battle other people doing the same. Put whatever price tag you want on it, make it only like the past good for like a week or something, and then get a new one. Why not? I
0: just want to play Blue White Tempo and Standard with Smuggler's Copter, Reflector Mage, and freaking what's the Blue White Counter Spirit? Spellqueller. Spellqueller. Yeah, that deck was sick.
1: Just let us play those toxic formats again to get our fix for a little while and then let us out. And don't make us collect those cards because owning them doesn't do us any good. Just let us pay one fee, jam a bunch of games for a while, and then give us a different format and we'll pay that fee again. Like, seems good. Love it. And when they go back and reprint those sets, they will have the option to do that.
0: Many options, many ways to consensually drain the wallet. I want to underscore that, yes, Arena, you can have my money, but it needs to be consensual. I need to feel good about it. You need to make me, your date, feel excited to be on a date with you and not just like lucky to have anyone to go on a date with whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that's how bad relationships go.
0: Indeed. And we're going to leave it there, crafties. (laughs) Leave it on a high note. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us again for another week of the ArenaCraft podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you back with us, and I hope that we won't be taking any other hiatuses in the near future. You can find this show on Spotify. You can find us on your podcatcher of choice. You can find Covert Go Blue streaming a very interesting mix of content lately, I must say. We've got reaction streams. We've got like replaying old Pro Tours. We've got Watch parties for various competitive events, you can catch CGB like memeing around in historic brawl. Zero win con <laughs> gamer over here. It's been a good selection. Uh, you can also catch Arjuna not streaming much at the moment, because he's a salty, salty dog. But I'm also on Twitch as well. You can watch the video version of this podcast, of me being very rude to the camera on Cavaco Blue's YouTube channel. With that, uh, I will sayonara and look forward to better things ahead. This is a, you know, consensual, like you don't just need somebody here,
1: right? You want me here, right?
0: That It's half the reason I took the week off, dude. I just couldn't bear to replace you anymore.
1: Okay, good. Later, crafties.